This episode is brought to you by O'Reilly Software Architecture Conferences. In 2020, choose from New York in February, Santa Clara, California in June, and Berlin in November. Network with and learn from experts as they share their knowledge in software architecture. Learn more at O'ReillySACon.com and save 20% on your path with code CASE. Hello, listeners, and welcome to a new conversation about software engineering. Uh, today on the Case Podcast, I have a guest, Lars Huppel. Hi, Lars. Hi, Lukas. Uh, and today we will talk about algebraic design. Um, Lars uh, is well known for his contributions on the Scala language uh, on the Type Level project. His PhD thesis was the formal proof of compiler correctness, and uh, he's a senior consultant at InnoQ. Um, for the listeners that don't know Scala, uh, we will not go deep into Scala in this podcast, no worries, but just say a few words about Scala. What, what kind of language is it? So Scala is a, a hybrid functional and object-oriented language, which initially started out um, targeting the JVM, but has since also gained a JavaScript backend. And um, it is quite similar to, to Java syntax-wise, uh, but extends it in many different ways. For example, there are uh, there's multiple inheritance with traits, something that's borrowed from Ruby. Uh, there's obviously uh, Lambda expressions and many other things. And also it's got a much more advanced uh, type system than Java. Okay, so uh, type level, it also so already sounds like type systems or something. Can you say a few words about the type level project? Right, yes. So uh, type level basically got started because I initially thought that the name sounded cool and um, the creator of Scala, Martin Oderski, and a few other people had recently founded a company that was called TypeSafe. So I mm -hmm. thought TypeLevel would also be a cool name. And uh, basically the idea behind TypeLevel is that we want to bring uh, strong functional programming to the JVM, um, borrowing some principles from, for example, Haskell. But at the same time, we wanted to make it idiomatic for Scala. We didn't just want to copy Haskell and uh, or turn it into Scala or something like that, or the other way around. Uh, we wanted to enable the uh, kind of programming you do in Haskell um, and then make that sort of amenable for, for Scala. Mm -hmm. So is it a library or is it a set of libraries? Oh, right. Yeah, so it is... Uh, started out as a um, collection of three libraries that sort of work together in, in, in nice ways. And now I forgot the numbers, but we have probably about 30 libraries now in this, under this umbrella. Mm -hmm. And since then, since we got started, we also have organized conferences uh, about these topics. And um, uh, we're working together with Scala Days, for example, um, with a co-located event. And uh, yeah, so it's also, it's, it's, both a set of libraries, but it's also a, a community for, for Scala people who want to do functional programming. Mm -hmm. So is it fair to say that um, in Scala there are some people that program in an object-oriented way and some people that program more in a functional way? Or is it a hybrid approach for everyone? Um, it's kind of a mix-and-match approach, and it is fair to say that different parts of the community prefer different approaches. For example, there's also uh, a strong part of the community uh, that uh, uses Akka, for example, which has this actor-based programming notion, um, which, of course, you can mix and match with functional programming if you want to, um, but uh, there are a few people who are migrating their code base from Java, and for them it's very uh, attractive to keep doing the more object-oriented, more imperative style of programming than maybe gradually uh, change over to Scala, for example, starting out with their tests. Um, so Scala is really, there's not really one style of mm -hmm. programming. And uh, I guess a, a lot of people find it very attractive, but a lot of people also criticize that because there's not like in Python, there's like one mm -hmm. way to do things, which is Pythonic. Uh, in, in Scala, there's not really anything like Scalanic or uh -huh. Scalactic or whatever. <laughs> okay. <laughs> there are multiple different ideas about that. So would you say that the um, type level project tries to find an idiomatic way to do one style of Scala programming? Yeah, I think that's fair to say. Okay. Um, a, a functional way of programming that um, makes the most use of Scala's idioms and uh -huh. uh, we, we try, tend to not, we try to not work against the language, we try to work with the language and then kind of improve on the developer experience. Mm -hmm. Cool. Um, so in today's podcast, we will not go 
deep into the type level uh, project. Uh, instead, I want to go a little bit uh, more meta than that. Um, so um, by exploring the differences in the OO style and FP style, but from an entirely new lens. Um, so by, we want to do that by talking about the expression problem. So can you maybe tell us what the expression problem is? Yeah, it's one of my favorite problems. Okay. Um, do you like problems? <laughs> of course, that's why I did a PhD thesis. <laughs> um, yeah, so the expression problem basically uh, uh, can be described as uh, you have... Uh, data and that data can come into in multiple different forms and on one hand you might want to add more forms of data but on the other hand you may also want to add more operations on that same data and uh, the expression problem basically describes that um, we always have to make a trade-off so either we choose a design approach of our data that makes it easy to add more kinds of data um, at a later point. That's usually what can be modeled with subclass very easily. You have an interface and you can always add more classes that implement this interface. Or the other trade-off uh, would be you can also implement it in such a way that it's easy to add more operations uh, later on. So the set of data is fixed and then you, you can add more operations, which in object-oriented way would usually be called the visitor pattern. So mm -hmm. you can always add more operations and and uh, not more kinds, but also the other way around. But the expression problem basically says that you always have to do some kind of trade-off between those two things. Okay, so let's try to revisit that with an example. Um, let's say I want to do something like a painting program, right? So we have different shapes uh, like squares and circles. And uh, I want to get the uh, size of, of, a, uh, of, um, of one of the shapes. Uh, and that's what I have now. So the, what does the expression problem say now? What's my problem now? Right. So let's say you have implemented it in a purely object-oriented way. So you have maybe an interface that's called shape. And that interface provides exactly one method, which would be called get size or compute size. And that returns floating point number, for example. Um, now, in this object-oriented way, you could then add more subclasses. You could say, I have a subclass rectangle that implements shape, and then it computes the size based on the length of both sides. Uh, then you could have uh, a circle or an ellipsis, which kind of depends on pi to some extent. Uh, and then you could also add more of these shapes, triangle, uh, whatever other things. Um, but if you want to add another method, for example, that moves or scales shape, you have a problem because you have a bunch of classes that already implement this interface. But now if you want to add this scaling function, for example, you would need to touch all of these different classes. Mm -hmm. So that's a problem with modularity. So you can always, in a new module, you can always add more shapes, more different shapes, but you couldn't, uh, you couldn't add another operation without touching all the existing implementations. So, so the problem doesn't state that it's impossible. It just states that it's a lot more work because you have to touch more... Uh, kinds of code right exactly okay yeah and the the uh, the kind of reverse uh, trade-off for that is uh, if you would be modeling that in a functional programming language where you usually specify uh, the kinds of data that you have up front so you would have a data type that has particular cases um, and then uh any kind of operation is just a function that you write on these uh, on these cases, and then you can always implement more functions that work on the cases that you already know. For example, by using pattern matching. But if you want to add more cases, like uh, let's say you have already rectangle and uh, circle, you want to add a triangle, you would have to touch all the different pattern matching uh, constructs uh, in your code. Otherwise, you may have uh, a problem because your function receives a shape that it doesn't know about how to deal with, right? Mm -hmm. So that would be the other end. In a new module, you could always define more functions on the same data, but you couldn't uh, just add more different shape. For that, you would have to touch all the existing functions on that shape. Okay. So... Um, just to be clear about it, um, does the expression problem already state that some that the one approach is functional and the other one is object oriented, or is it more, uh, yeah, nuanced than that? Uh, I, I would say it's more general than that. Um, mm -hmm. It's just that, um, for example, the object oriented way with subclasses and mm -hmm. the, for example the Haskell way with, with data type, it's just 
two very succinct illustrations of these mm -hmm. opposing ends of these trade-offs. But um, you can make that design work in in any language, no matter what um, no matter what approach you choose. And mm -hmm. in particular, I think the the term expression problem or the problem behind it is probably older than uh, than many other programming terms and uh, it's been described quite a while ago mm -hmm. um, and in fact the original definition by by Phil Wardler uh, who's one of the creators of Haskell he, he, in this descri description he doesn't even mention functional or object-oriented programming at mm -hmm. all he just talks about adding more cases or adding more operations without recompiling existing mm -hmm. code uh, and that that's about it he doesn't really make any uh, point about the paradigm behind it okay um, so, if if we are uh, looking into the the approach uh, where we let's just say that we go the approach of using interfaces in Java, um, is there some are there approaches where people try to solve the expression problem without like leaving the uh, approach with interfaces in an object oriented language, or is it because it's unsolvable we can't do anything about it? Um, I mean, all of these problems are, are solvable. It just depends on how much boilerplate code yeah. you're willing to write. Yeah. Uh, and in particular, there are ways to 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 work around this in in Java, for example. Um, one such possibility is called object algebras, uh, where you would be uh, uh, using much more interfaces than than usual. In, in, so instead of working with with subclasses, uh, like concrete subclasses for, like, example, circle or rectangle, you would have an interface that defines methods for constructing and deconstructing uh, rectangles mm -hmm. and, and, and circles and all of that is possible and um, however it requires a lot of boilerplate in Java but after Java 8 where the language also learned uh, lambdas and its syntax it's become much better to work with although I'm not entirely clear if if anyone has been using that much okay um, you do see visitor patterns sometimes um, but like visitor pattern is kind of like the opposite end of the mm -hmm. but like these object algebras um, I, I think they're mainly of academic interest okay so because um, what do you think is the reason for that are people that go uh, with this classic Java OO approach are they just not feeling the pain of the problem or um, is is it too academic or um, I think it's maybe just a different mindset and also I think many people are not acutely aware that this is a problem that has a name and that has mm. been talked about in, in research and uh, people are very content with with modeling their 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 objects and their their domains in these in this interface and classes style um, that maybe it doesn't even occur to them that there could be a different way of, of doing these things. yeah okay uh, and on the other hand uh, let's say we are programming in Haskell um, do I have a chance to escape the the expression problem there? Uh, into the other direction? Uh, yes. So in, in Haskell, uh, what people would uh, typically use uh, uh, is a construct that's called type classes. And uh, type classes have nothing to do with classes, as you know, from, from Java. So you have to completely forget about what I just said <laughs> <laughs> earlier. Uh, it's got nothing to do with interfaces or classes. Uh, type classes are essentially a way of adding more operations on existing types um, if you are used to maybe Kotlin uh, or C-sharp, you may have heard that concept called extension methods, mm -hmm. although Haskell was did that before them. So okay. they have pioneered this approach of type class, and what it basically means, it's, it's sort of like an interface, uh, but it's an interface that you can implement after the fact. So you can define a data type, you can define an interface, and then you can um, make an implementation of this interface for the data type, but you can do it at an arbitrary point. Like you don't, mm -hmm. if you want to add such an implementation, you don't have to touch the interface or the data type. It's just something that's completely decoupled from these two things. And it's kind of interesting that some other languages are also moving towards itself, for example, in Rust, where you have these traits and then impulse for these traits and that kind of works in a similar way. Um, there's still a bit of a problem in, in, in Haskell because uh, usually you wouldn't abstract over different types that have the same interface. So you would usually talk about a, a type uh, one type at, at the same time that has this interface implementation. But for example, in Haskell, you wouldn't really have a list of objects. Mm -hmm. right? This kind of notion doesn't really make any sense. In Java, if you have a list of objects, you can at runtime look what class it is and then do something with it. In Haskell, you can't really do that. That's what mm -hmm. these type classes are for. Uh, so that also means that uh, you would probably have a list of things that are shapes, 
right? Mm -hmm. um, uh, if, you, if you want to abstract over these types, you always need a little bit more structure that you can work with. Mm -hmm. So, for example, if you have a list of shapes, then you can say, well, I want to scale all of these shapes. Mm -hmm. um, but you couldn't necessarily look at what kind of shape it is because you mm -hmm. have discarded that information. It's not there in a type. Okay, so let, let's go into this example again. Let's say that I have a, a collection of some kind, like an array or a list uh, of shapes, and I want to get a list of all their sizes. So how would this work in this uh, kind of way? Uh, well, so you could imagine that you would have a, a, a type class that has a size operation that mm -hmm. takes in the shape um, of that particular type and then returns a floating point number. And then you could just use map of this. You could just mm -hmm. uh, map this function over the list and then you would get a list of floating point numbers. Okay, and each of them uh, is of this same type class. Yeah. Okay, interesting. So it's, it's really like from uh, like from a uh, basic perspective it looks a lot like they all just uh, adhere to the same interface right exactly even though it's it has yeah. some more uh, possibilities like from this point of view it's basically the same yeah okay but i do want to point out that in in, in haskell code you very rarely see these kinds of abstracted collections you would usually have a collection like a list of one concrete type mm. uh that it, it really doesn't happen that often that that you would do that and that's also a different mindset right mm. so it's uh it's it's people would would tend to uh, model uh their type just at once so they say i have a data type shape and i give these five different possibilities of what that shape could be and then you just have lists of these things but mm. uh, you wouldn't uh frequently have that kind of extensibility there in the, in that direction uh, okay so yeah it's just it's it's just a, a completely opposite way of of thinking about modeling data okay so so the typical approach to modeling in haskell would not say that we have triangles and circles they would just say they are shapes um i i would say i would say um in, in haskell you would try to break these uh things down to their bare components for example you would probably have a data type that can store polygons mm -hmm. um because then you can construct triangles and, and, and many other things based on these polygons and of course you also need something for arcs and curves in order to get the to get circles but um in, in in principle you would try to break down these components to their bare minimum so that you can describe uh, their structure once and for all and then you can compose those small structures into bigger structures like mm -hmm. rectangles for example oh okay interesting um so uh, let's get back to the title of the episode uh, we we said something about algebras um what is an algebra Right. So uh, if you ask a mathematician what an algebra is, it's basically just a, a list of objects and a list of operations you can do on these objects, which mm -hmm. sounds like it can be any number of things, right? It doesn't okay. really, it's not very concrete. So it could, for example, be some kinds of shapes and operations on those shapes? Exactly. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And uh, what's most important about these algebras is that they usually come equipped with some laws, that mm -hmm. those operations have to adhere to, right? So you can't just manipulate some objects in that algebra, but you also need to make sure that these operations they follow some kind of uh, um, they need to follow some kind of laws, right? For example, uh, one law would be idempotence, right? If you apply an operation once and then you apply it once more, then it should be the same thing as applying it once. And I believe in particular in the field of databases uh, and mm -hmm. distributed systems, this is a property you very mm -hmm. often want. And algebra basically says you have a structure, you have operations on them, and then these operations satisfy some kinds of laws. But uh, something being an algebra doesn't imply any specific laws. It just says that there could be laws. Uh, it's kind of an in if you say I'm going to design an algebra, it's kind of the intention to to make some yeah. laws about these so that you can reason about these algebras abstractly, and this is this is the purpose why 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 algebra exists in mathematics because mathematicians they don't like to talk about concrete things. I mean, some mathematicians do, mm -hmm. but uh, I'm a formal methods person, so I like to talk about abstract mm -hmm. things. Um, so instead of talking, for example, about real numbers. We would talk about some kind of algebra that abstracts over that, so we can talk about real numbers, natural numbers, complex numbers, and other things at the same time without having to be very specific about mm -hmm. the concrete objects. But we can talk about addition, for example, because we know that addition um, has some particular properties um, for all the different 
structures that are out there, right? Mm -hmm. We can say that addition on integers is uh, satisfies the similar laws like the addition on real numbers, for example. It doesn't matter what kind of where you put the parentheses is. Mm -hmm. and in what order you oper uh, do the operation, right? So commutativity and associativity, and this is the same for integers, for real numbers, for complex numbers, for example. Um, so by, by, by talking about these abstract algebras, you try to uh, remove all the concrete details that are irrelevant to your problem. Instead, you focus on the laws that these operations satisfy. Mm -hmm. Okay, so I imagine that some people need some additional <laughs> information about that. So let's unwrap that. Um, is uh, um, summing up numbers an algebra? Is addition an algebra? Um, you wouldn't call it addition being an algebra. You would give it a different name. Mm -hmm. uh, we would be talking about the so-called uh, monoids here. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, I'm not actually sure what where the term monoid comes from. It's just something that you learn very early on in <laughs> university when you, when you study algebra. Uh -huh. And uh, a monoid is an algebra that... Say that says there must be one operation and we would usually call it operation addition mm -hmm. for example um, and then we say this operation um, must have uh, must have one property which means we, it doesn't matter what where we put the parentheses mm -hmm. uh, so if you have A plus B plus C it doesn't matter if you um, add A and B first and then you add C on top or if you first add B and C and then add A on top mm -hmm. and the monoid also requires that, there's to, that there has to be a zero of mm -hmm. some kind, and that zero must be neutral with respect to the um, addition operation, right? So you have zero plus a is equal to a, uh, and a plus zero is equal to a. So mm -hmm. it's, uh, it should be neutral with respect to the operation. Okay, so the uh, if we go back to like fifth grade or sixth grade, uh, we we learn some of those laws, right, uh, in, yeah, in school, but we uh, we don't talk about algebra in exactly. that sense. We just like we get concrete laws. For exactly. addition, for example. Yeah. Okay. And very often that's how the human brain works, right? You talk about uh, a different uh, concrete examples that follow the same property and then our brain is very good at extracting the general patterns from that. Mm -hmm. And then that's what the mathematicians did. They said, okay, we have these integers, we have these rational numbers. They have a similar operation. Uh, they work similarly. So maybe it's just, just abstracted and call it mm -hmm. a monoid, for example. Mm -hmm. But there's also completely different examples of monoids, for example, in real life, if you consider trains, for example. Mm -hmm. uh, you can you can describe trains as a monoid um let's but we have to take we have to use old style old school trains for that like uh -huh. old school trains that consist of multiple different carriages and maybe locomotives and all of these these carriages they have couplers where mm -hmm. you can like merge two trains together you can you can attach one end to the other end and that's also a monoid because the attaching operation is um, a, a monoid operation and you can mm -hmm. also say it doesn't matter in which order you um uh, do the coupling right you can first attach all the carriages and then add it at the end of the locomotive or you can also first add one after the other carriage to the locomotive for example and uh, you can also have um, multiple locomotives in, in between if it's a long train you need multiple cars that drive the train uh, so that's uh, a, a real life example mm -hmm. <laughs> of, of monoids and if, if we go back to like things that we do in programming like lists and concatenating them is that also an algebra uh, it, it would be an example of a, of a monoid. So it's an instance, it's a specific instance of this um, monoid algebra. Mm -hmm. Okay. So um, this now was pretty abstract. Now, what does it have to do with the expression problem? Oh, yeah. Interesting <laughs> question. Um, so in algebraic design approach, you would um, try to uh, break down your data into the most atomic parts, um, what I've also mentioned before, for example, you would try to express shapes as polygons and then you would try to describe all the operations you can uh, do on these uh, polygons and then uh, you would then try to build a much richer API based only on those primitives and uh, other clients of your library, uh, they can define their own um, um, composite or, or complex uh, shapes based mm -hmm. off your primitives. And all of that works out because you have thought about the laws that you want to um, offer to clients or what, what they should expect. For example, scaling, um, where it doesn't matter if you scale twice or you scale just once with a, with a larger scaling factor, right? For example, if you scale twice, 
with a scaling factor of two, then you could also scale once with a scaling factor four. So you also have kind of a, um, a, a similar properties like in, in monoids there, for example, because it really doesn't matter in which order you do the scaling. If you do multiple scalings in order, you can just collapse that to the to this, 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 to one. Um, and it kind of also reflects in, for example, the Java Stream API, where you have multiple operations you can do on, do on these streams. And uh, for example, if you map twice, you can also just map once with a composed function. Um, and all of these things come from the fact that somebody has thought very hard what the primitive operations are and what kind of uh, laws you can provide on these operations. So if we are following algebraic designs, uh, do we always think about those rules in the back of our mind? So the, the rules of composition or is this just like very natural to you uh, to think in this way? Well, I mean, for me, it's it's quite natural because, <laughs> again, I'm, I'm come from the formal methods uh, um, from a formal methods place and what we do is we basically write specifications and then we try to prove that our implementations um, satisfy these specifications uh, so so to me it comes very natural uh, but also only because i've been working with this for many years right mm -hmm. so i wouldn't expect someone who just started out with programming to uh, to do that um, in, in particular i think uh, people who are new to that are still tend to think about concrete examples um, which you also see in, in unit tests, for example, it's mostly about concrete examples and, and, and uh, the outputs instead of describing actually relationships between inputs and output, no mm -hmm. matter what the concrete value is. Um, so before we get into specifications, because that's another topic I want to talk to you about, um, do you have an example where uh, you would say that you get to a different result when using algebraic design than the um, OO in big quotes uh, approach yeah i think I, i could think of one such example um and uh it, it's something that's become relatively popular uh, in in the past uh, a few years which uh, is this distributed data structure that's called crdts um and that stands for conflict-free replicated data types and those have been around for a while now um basically the idea is that you have um some kind of uh, data structure and that may be distributed among different systems. And then you want to find some kind of consensus of what the shared view of, of these things uh, are. Uh, and it, those can be stuff like you have a CRDT for JSON documents, or you could have something simpler like a, a CRDT just for a set. Uh, and what's, so there are many different CRDTs, but what's common to all of them, they have prescribed a very fixed Uh, set of, of shapes that the data can have. For example, for JSON, you know, it can be an object, it can be an array, for example, but you can't extend that. Um, and there's also a set of operations you can do. For example, you can insert some values, um, you could move around some values, and it's very clear that um, these operations behave in a particular way. Um, for example, for many classes of these CRDTs, these operations are commutative. That means you can swap them in any order, which is very nice if you are working in distributed systems where messages may get delayed, uh, they may get dropped uh, or, or reshuffled in some way. So you could, for example, just uh, send uh, send them out as you see. The, as you can send those um, messages out these operations as, as they come in. Uh, and then no matter in what order they arrive at a different system, the other system will be able to reconstruct the same state. So a very simple CRDT would be a counter, right? You have a counter uh, and uh, every time someone clicks on plus one or clicks on like, you want to have a, a shared understanding. And so you just send a plus one operation. And this is obviously commutative, right? It doesn't matter in which order those plus, on, what those, those plus ones arrive. Uh, you will always arrive at the same result. So a counter would be a very simple, but uh, a simple example. But of course, there are more complex ones, like as I said, JSON documents. And the cool thing is, because of this uh, commutativity property, you are always guaranteed that you will eventually converge to a consistent view of your world. Right? Eventually, all the nodes will agree on what the current state is, uh, and it. You don't also. You also don't need a, a central coordinator. All of these are peers, and they can send messages to each other, and they will converge. And this is a result um, of thinking very hard what the data looks like and what kind of primitive operations you could do. Um, so that's what I would call algebraic design. Uh, on the other hand, if you would do non-algebraic design, I think what you would think instead of uh, you would think about, for example, user stories. Like the user wants to do this kind of operation. Uh, or, or this kind of process, and then you have a bunch of things that need to happen. So you would, for example, have a, an API that says, do this uh, operation, whatever, 
buy a house. I don't know. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Sounds like a very big operation. But <laughs> <laughs> and then you have uh, the implementer of this API would then take care of doing all of these steps in one atomic way. Um, so it kind of shifts the responsibility uh, a, a bit um, around. Um, and I think this is the, this is, uh, the, the beauty of the algebraic design is that um, by, by talking about these laws, you get these primitive operations and then uh, clients of your library can um, compose them in a way they, they say fit without um, uh, getting an API that kind of prescribes how you have to think. Mm -hmm. So um, the way that you describe that, it sounds a lot like in this approach to uh, programming uh, that you have to have a bigger effort of thinking upfront and thinking through the entire problem before you start working on it. So it's it sounds more like big design upfront in quotes that is has a bad name in like agile fields um would you say that this is a fair assessment or is this not fair i, I would say it's it's totally fair and uh, depending on what your domain is you may be required to do that because it could be for example too costly if you make mistakes um and they're too costly to change Uh, and not not all the like if you if you have I don't know like a, 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 some kind of smartphone app that's for entertainment purposes it mm -hmm. doesn't really matter you can just change things but uh, for example if you're designing kind of a medical device you are in a domain anyway where you have to think very hard upfront <laughs> because mm. mistakes are very costly so I think uh, um, depending on your depending on your domain it it may even be required or it can be very worthwhile to to um, think very hard. Okay. About your design. So let's say that I design uh, a plane, then maybe costs are uh, the 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 cost is very uh, high if something goes wrong, right? Right, exactly. Okay. Although these are kind of like two orthogonal things, right? Yeah. I just wanted to make the point that there yeah. are legitimate domains where you have to do an upfront design. Yeah. Um so um what what it reminds me of is that um there is this the way of um Uh, thinking that some people um, want to do iterative information processing and some want to do comprehensive information processing. So they want to gather as much information beforehand and then uh, solve the problem or others want to be iterative. Do you think that this is like a different style of thinking uh, that maybe some people would prefer to go this way because their thinking style is different? Yeah, totally. And um, I, I mean different people think in different ways they have different perspectives on the world uh, and I, I for example I am the kind of person who would like to collect as much information beforehand as possible mm -hmm. um, but I, I can see how others would prefer a different way mm -hmm. okay so it's not only a, a, a question about the problem but also maybe about the people that want to solve it right exactly yeah. and it also may be like if you're building if you're building a software system there may be uh, subparts of this that you may want to solve in one particular way for example the core of the system like for example the, the data processing uh, a bit of it uh, and other parts like maybe the user interface uh, you may do it in a different way because you can't even envision right now how the user is going to interact with the system mm. but on the other hand the core might as well be rock solid you yeah. already have a very clear picture of what that would look like and in particular um, the domain driven design approach um, also kind of can be construed in, in thinking very hard about the, the domain objects that you have mm -hmm. uh, in, in the first place and then some of you have these value objects um, you describe very in very clear detail what the objects from your domain are and then you have for example the aggregates where you have to describe what the relationship between your things is how they can interact with each other and this is also kind of a similar thing I have to think very, uh, upfront about uh, your domain objects and their interactions their relationships and I mean nobody prevents you from changing that at some point right mm. you should still be able to change this but um, still the methodology is the same way I would okay. I would argue but but uh, just to understand that like um, in a lot of projects we have to do is make assumptions about our users about uh, how they want to interact with our product and uh, they those assumptions might be wrong because users behave differently than we assume uh, in this scenario would you say that this uh, approach that needs a lot of design up front has a disadvantage because uh, we have to make too many assumptions uh, and don't know enough yeah uh, that i think that's a i think that's a fair summary right mm -hmm. um and yeah 
again, I think this is a matter of, of splitting up, like, the, or like trying to segregate, like, the core, where you have a very mm -hmm. clear idea from maybe some other parts that may be completely in flux. Uh, for example, when you're talking about assumptions, right? Um, when you make assumptions about users, they are usually wrong. <laughs> so you build a product and then it gets user tested and then may, they may be doing something completely different. On the other hand, if you, for example, talk to someone in accounting what an invoice looks like, you can be very sure that these requirements are probably going to change the same, yeah. stay the same because it's very unlikely that, for example, a tax accountant will say uh, next month, actually, I've changed my mind, uh, value added tax works completely differently now. Right? Yeah. This is probably not, this yeah. is probably a, 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 a nice example there that you have some some domain areas where you can be very sure upfront and others, uh, maybe that's, yeah, like UI, for example, that may change very mm -hmm. frequently. Okay, that, that sounds reasonable. Um, so if, if we look into this um, and we move our focus to testing, uh, I can imagine that um, the way that we probably do testing in this more iterative style, like TDD style, is maybe different than the way we would test it uh, in this approach. Can you talk about a bit about testing in this mindset? Uh, yeah, so I, I agree. Uh, it is really like the this kind of algebraic design patterns, they really, really don't like TDD and, yeah. and, and vice versa. Uh, in TDD, you always have the approach of thinking with the examples first, right? So you write a piece of uh, test code that would say, for example, I'm calling this function with the number five and the string hello. Mm -hmm. And then I get a result that's maybe eight, right? Um, and while well, writing the test, you only have the rules in your mind, but what you type are concrete examples and the relationships basically gets lost in translation, right? So mm -hmm. you have something in your mind, but you have something else in the code. Mm -hmm. And then you try to write a code in such a way that it kind of reconstructs these rules and then makes the, trust, the test pass. Um, on the other hand, when you do uh, this uh, kind of algebraic approach, you would think about the laws, and the laws don't care about specific values, right? So the commutativity law for integers would be x plus y is equal to y plus x. Mm -hmm. The order doesn't matter. But when, when talking about this law, you don't think about 5 or 3, you think about x and y. Mm -hmm. right? So your tests would be much more abstract. Yeah. Um, your tests would not be talking about concrete examples, your tests would be talking about variables. And then you would be using some kind of framework that would be able to fill in examples for these variables. Mm -hmm. So you would, for example, say the test literally says for all x and y, ensure that x plus y is equal to y plus x. And then you would use some kind of framework. Um, those frameworks are known as property testing uh, frameworks uh, that they would then like look at the type of x and y and then figure out some examples and then just like test 100 instances of this. Mm -hmm. uh, so I, I would argue that this is completely different because in, in TDD, people are very specific about, for example, testing edge cases and like documenting very clearly, this is a test about this particular part and this is a test about this particular zero and empty string, whatever. And in property test or in like testing for algebraic design, um, you would let, uh, you would offload that to the property framework. Right? Mm -hmm. So you would say, uh, just give me any x and y. I don't care. You just like just check that the relationship that I had in mind holds, and I don't care about the specifics. Yeah. So, but it's hard for me to imagine how this works in the addition case, right? So I would just say uh, generate examples for me. But how does it? How does the framework know that the result is correct? Uh, well, you would say, for example for all x and y, and then you would make an assertion, right? You, you would do this in the same way as in unit testing, where you should expect that this thing equals that other thing. Um, and you would do the same in, in, in that other testing style, in this property testing style. You would also make an assertion, uh, but you don't care where the input values come from. Uh -huh. but, but it sounds a little bit like I'm implementing everything twice, right? So I'm, I'm writing the, uh, the way it has to work, and then I'm implementing it the same way. How does that fit together? Uh, that might very well be the case uh, in, in a lot of examples, but I have a very nice counterexample to yeah. this uh, where the specification or the tests look very different from the implementation, which is like sorting algorithms, right? It is very simple to write an efficient function that checks if a list is sorted, right? You would just mm. look at one element after the other and check if the next element is uh, larger than the previous element, mm -hmm. right? So that would be a specification. Uh, a sort of, this is what, what being sorted means. Um, on the other hand, writing an efficient sorting algorithm is very hard. <laughs> yeah. So uh, 
the JVM has this Tim sort algorithm, which is an optimized merge sort algorithm, which um, had a bunch of bugs in there, and now they're sure it's correct. But anyway, it's it's a, it's a it's a big function. It does a lot of things. It is very performance optimized. Uh, the point is the specification in this case is very simple. Mm. You give a list in, you expect a list back which has the same elements but now sorted. That is very easy to write down, but the implementation is very hard. So this is actually a prime example for how you can use property testing because instead of writing five different lists uh, as input that you want to get sorted, just say, give me any list, pipe it through the sort function and check if the result is sorted. Mm -hmm. right? And that's obviously very different from, from a basic implementation. Now, if you talk about addition, for example, of course... <clears throat> Um, that might be sometimes difficult because in, in very often operations are trivial to implement and then you would just be duplicating this. So I think this, this is another case of thinking very hard about what the actual properties are um, so that you don't have to repeat yourself in the test because that mm -hmm. would be an anti-pattern. Mm -hmm. if, if the specification is the same as the implementation, that's, of, that's no good. Yeah, yeah, okay. So it, it reminds me a little bit of the P versus NP problem, right? You have problems where it's very easy Uh, to check if the result is correct, but it's not easy to get to the result, right? Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Okay. And and most of the time, uh, when when we implement our business code, we don't have to solve these big problems. Like yeah. we don't tend to have to solve the satisfiability problem, yeah. right, or anything that's an NP. But what we have to do is we have to do is solve stuff efficiently. Mm -hmm. So one fallback option that you could always do is very often you have uh, when you have an, when you think about a problem, you have a very simple implementation that's super slow. <laughs> Maybe mm -hmm. it just tries out things. Mm -hmm. And then you have an implementation that's smart but very hard to figure out if it's correct. So you could just compare these two things, right? Yeah. So in your test you could just write a simple implementation that's very short and then maybe slow and you can compare that to the actual mm. I, I i i would still think that's like a second class test it's yeah. not something i would prefer but if there's nothing else that you could come up with it's still a very nice okay thing to be doing so it re reminds me a little bit of the um the, the um, github has a gem called science uh, which allows you to do refactorings in production right where Uh, they say you have an old implementation of the code uh, and you know that it works, uh, but you want to make it faster. And what they do is basically uh, they run this, the new implementation, the old implementation, they compare results to just understand if the new better implementation is really correct. Right? Yeah, so it, that sounds like a strategy of dealing with legacy systems. Yeah, right. Assuming. Uh, yeah, so I, I, I would argue that's not exactly algebraic design mm -hmm. because in yeah. algebraic design you really want to talk about relationships yeah. like for example you have a currency type and then you know well adding these is a monoid right mm. because you want shouldn't matter in which uh, order some balance operations happen on, mm. on a currency uh, amount um, I, I would argue this is more of an algebraic design pattern and you use property testing to enforce this uh, but you can also use property testing in different ways that mm -hmm. are maybe not strictly speaking algebraic Okay, but uh, I imagine like uh, you probably also taught that uh, that style of thinking at university, right? Um, so I can imagine that it's hard uh, to get into this mindset of um, uncovering the uh, attributes of your system, the rules of your system, right? To write the correct property test. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, it's 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 very hard, and uh, in fact, writing specifications is something. Uh, that I think takes a lot more time to learn than writing implementation. Yeah. Um, but I think it's it's worth investing the effort in that because um, very frequently just thinking about the specification uncovers problems with the implementation, mm -hmm. right? There are a few universities that actually teach only specification without proofs, right? Mm. So they teach students how to write specifications without actually giving them the tools to check if the specification or the implementation is correct. Mm. Uh, but just thinking about the specification makes you think very hard about corner cases up front. Mm. And, and just that is a tool by itself to improve software quality, right? You don't even need to write these tests. Yeah. <laughs> even just in the process of writing down the, or thinking about these properties, you think, oh, actually, you know, what happens if I have an empty list here? Maybe I didn't think of that. Mm. And of course, you can also get there with TDD. But TDD, in my ex in my experience, is always much more example driven. Mm. And when you think about these specifications, they are usually much more abstract, and, and mm -hmm. people tend to think about a lot more a wide variety of diff different inputs or conditions. Yeah, interesting. Like uh, like the the way that a lot of people do TDD, uh, me included, is like uh, you always write the test and write the 
uh, the, the smallest piece of code that satisfies this test, right? So you try to trick yourself, basically. Like, yeah. th But this doesn't work with this implementation and this implementation, right? Yeah, and you can do it. Yeah, into exactly. It. Yeah. Um, so would you say that it's fair to say that the, this approach is more focused on the problem while uh, the TDD approach is more focused on the solution, maybe? Yeah, I think that's uh, that's a fair assessment. Um, I think someone famous, I forgot who it was, once said, like, how to solve any problem, step one, think very hard, second, there's the solution. <laughs> yeah. Uh -huh. <laughs> okay, interesting. Um, so, um, while we are at it, um, let's talk about model checking. How does this play into this um, framework or... Oh yeah, so model checking maybe for people who who don't know it, um, it's it's a technique that also originates from from this formal methods area in in, in computer science research. Uh, basically, it's um, it's it's kind of property testing on steroids mm -hmm. um, because it tries to explore a, a much larger state space. Um, whereas in property testing, you would usually the frameworks are set up in a way that they would try like a hundred random examples maybe. In, in, in model checking, what you can do is you, you can write down a specification, maybe for, for example, for a distributed system, uh, and then you can then you can invoke a tool, and then the tool would, um, you could say, like, try this out for up to five agents. And then that would tool, like, the tool would try to exhaustively find all the states in the system up to five agents, and then try to figure out if there's something that's breaking it. Um, or, for example, you could say, I have some kind of uh, a code that has loops, and then you could say, try to find all the states with up to five loop iterations. Mm -hmm. uh, and then it would try to, f to, f to find problems in the, in the implementation there. Um, so it, it's kind of um, a, a much more exhaustive way of, of testing things uh, because it looks at the actual state space of, mm -hmm. uh, of, of some code. And there's a lot of people who actually use that in practice. For example, Microsoft, um, when you want to, let's say you're a device uh, vendor and you want to ship your uh, driver with Windows, I think at some point at Windows 7 or something like that, they started to enforce that it, those drivers pass these model checking uh, suites and these they would, for example, check that there's no null point of the reference or that there's no mm. division by zero or something. And of course, uh, it's very hard to prove that in general. Um, it's, it's actually very difficult and expensive to prove that. So you will have these model checking tools which will then try to explore the state space up to a reasonable boundary. Like mm. saying like, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm going to look at, yeah, is that like five agents, up to five agents, up to 10 loop iterations, something mm -hmm. like that. Um, and <clears throat> usually this works also uh, hand in hand with the specification. So would, you would, for example, say my specification for device drivers would be I don't have a null point of dereference and also mm -hmm. I don't want to be stuck in an infinite loop, something like that. Um, uh, of course, it's a very different domain from what we have talked about before. But <clears throat> um, for distributed systems, it's also very interesting. Mm -hmm. um, and you have distributed databases, you want to assert that <clears throat> it takes only that amount of cycles to arrive at a consensus, for example. And mm -hmm. then uh, these model checking tools are very useful for that. Uh, okay, so um, uh, I think that there, like, like the number of states will get very uh, big very fast. Um, does it take days to to simulate it then, or I mean that's why you have to uh, Bounded, say right? that's that's why you have to give an upper bound right yeah. of 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 of, uh, of the state and property testing just says give me a hundred and then you know exactly how long it's going to take it's yeah. a hundred iterations. Um, but for model checking, yeah, you have to find a reasonable boundary because if you ask uh, if you ask for like I don't know a distributed system for fifty agents, you're going to uh, have to wait for until the heat death of the universe. It's not yeah. going to finish on, until then. Okay, so so how is the connection to to formal proofs then? Like like it, it, we know them from math. Is it, is it is it similar to formal proofs? Um, yeah, I mean it's it's kind of uh, it's if, if you look at the progression from unit testing to property testing to model checking, then the end would be uh, a formal proof uh, where you would argue about all the different states, right? Mm. And you can't do that just by enumerating all the different states because there are infinitely many most of the time, right? For yeah. example, when you sort a list, there are infinitely many lists that you could be sorting. So uh, it doesn't really make sense to say, uh, try all the lists. Yeah. You can't. Um, yeah. So instead, you have to look at the actual implementation. And mm. um, all the other things before, they are kind of, they treat... Um, the implementation is a black box, right? Your unit testing library cannot look at the implementation. Mm -hmm. It will just run the implementation. Yes. 
And most of the time, this is this is also similar for model checking. It just mm -hmm. treats that as, as as a black box. Um, in formal proof, you actually have to open the black box. You actually have to look inside at what makes these things work. What are the invariants that you have that you that you have to satisfy in loops, for example? Um, sorting is again a nice example. So for 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 merge sort, you would have the invariant that you always split a list in two. And then you sort these smaller lists, and then those sublists are sorted, and then you can merge them together. Mm -hmm. So you actually have to argue about the concrete implementation, what's happening there. And um, this is potentially uh, very, like, it takes a long time because you have to actually uh, think about what's happening there. And um, yeah, if you say that an implementation is simple and a specification is harder, then the formal proof would be an order of magnitude even harder than the specification. Yeah. So this requires a lot of careful thinking there. Interesting. Um, so in, in, in distributed systems, uh, there's this problem of consensus that we also already mentioned. And uh, Leslie Lamport, he wrote a lot of papers about it. Uh, and he came up with a system called TLA Plus to, uh, to show that his um, implementation is right on which level of this um, scale that you uh, explained would TLA Plus be? Would it be a formal proof or... Yeah, so TLA plus itself is uh, just uh, just a language. Um, yeah, it's it's a specification language, and there are model checkers for TLA plus. I believe there may be tools that you can write formal proofs over TLA plus specification, but I'm not sure how widely mm. they are being used. Uh, but in principle, I, I think most people will be using it uh, for model checking. Okay, so we we could uh, write a model checking test with TLA plus for our sorting algorithm or distributed problem. Yeah, I, I think the most use case for TLA plus would be more in the distributed systems domain. Yeah. Um, I'm, I'm not sure how many people use it for sorting algorithms. <laughs> <but Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> okay, this, this would be maybe a bit too um, complicated for <laughs> such a simple problem, maybe? Mm, I yeah. don't know. <laughs> okay. I, I don't really have much experience with TLA plus. <laughs> <laughs> uh, have you also looked at Idris? Um, how does this... Um... Yeah, Idris is another interesting hybrid because in Idris, uh, you kind of can can make formal proofs embedded in the language. So you mm -hmm. have a programming language that is useful for implementing algorithms and, and you know other things. Uh, and at the same time, it has an embedded type system that uh, is powerful enough to let you actually specify properties on that, uh, on, on those programs that you wrote and then also write the proofs. Um, Idris is interesting because um, as, as far as these kinds of languages go, it's designed with uh, usability in mind. Uh, so it is actually designed to write programs that you could run, like you could write a microservice in Idris. That's the mm -hmm. plan, right? Mm -hmm. I'm not sure if there are such frameworks yet. Idris mm -hmm. boot, maybe, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, at least that's that's design. And the, the the creator of 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 Idris calls it Pac-Man complete. Like it, it's a language mm -hmm. that you could write Pac-Man in. Mm -hmm. right? mm -hmm. um, and uh, you can also write unit tests in Idris, but it, it will shine if you try to write proofs of your on your program mm -hmm. of about your programs in there. And um, once you try that, you will realize that proving correctness is very hard. Mm -hmm. um, and um, the usual rule of thumb is that you have to write an order of magnitude more lines of proof than lines of code. Um, and I'm assuming that will be similar for Idris. Um, so, so in Idris, would you write the proof as like the type? Or is it something... No, in, in interest, you would write a specification as a type. Yeah. So you would, for example, give the specification what it means to be sorted. You would write it as a type and then a sorting function like merge sort or bubble sort would have that type that not only says you give a list in and give a list back, get a list back, but you would also say, well, you take in a list and you return a list that's also sorted and has mm -hmm. the same elements as the input. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, that's you can do that with a type system that's called dependent types. Mm -hmm. um, and basically what it allows you to do is you can specify return types that depend on the input. Mm -hmm. right? So you could say the, the, the merge sort function has an output type um, that says something about that, that contains additional information um, that you could uh, do. You, in, in, in Java, you couldn't just say it returns a list. Yeah. In Idris, you can say it contains it returns uh, a sorted list that contains the same element as the input. So you mm. have this kind of dependency between input and output there. Mm -hmm. So so would it be fair to say that um, a type system uh, is a way to specify uh, the behavior of the code? Yes, very okay. much so. And uh, depending on the level of sophistication in your type system, that's the amount of, of specification that you can do. Uh, 
Java can do specifications, right? If you have a function that returns a list, that's already a specification because you know, well, it returns a list. It doesn't mm -hmm. return uh, a float. It doesn't return yeah. a string, right? It yeah. returns a list. And in languages that are untyped, like JavaScript, you don't have that, right? Mm -hmm. in, in, in JavaScript, you have a function and you know it returns something, mm -hmm. uh, but you don't know what it returns. Yeah. Um, so you would need to look at the code. But in Java, already you can look at, you see that yeah. type. Although you might argue that just looking at the return type is not going to help you very much. Right? But it also says something about maybe does can this function raise an exception? You, you cannot see that in JavaScript, right? You can right. not see if it yeah. could rate an exception. Yeah, but also in, in Java, very often you can't yeah. see that because they are runtime exceptions. But for example, yeah. languages like Haskell, uh, where, I mean, there are still exceptions in Haskell, but they are very rarely used and only in particular circumstances. But a regular function that, for example, a sorting function couldn't throw an exception yeah. just like that. Um, I mean, yes, it can, but it's yeah. uh, it's it's a it's a cultural style that people wouldn't raise exceptions um, if the type doesn't say so. Mm -hmm. um, and you could still get runtime exceptions like division by zero. You can't mm -hmm. see that in a type in Haskell, but in Idris, for example, you can do that. Mm -hmm. You could define a division operation that where the compiler would reject the invocation of that operation yeah. if you can't prove that it doesn't divide by zero. Yeah, but um, it probably. Uh, a, a type system cannot prove that something doesn't raise an exception, right? Because that would be equivalent to the halting problem, probably? Um, that's uh, that's a common misconception. Okay. Um, so what you can do with a type system is um, you can you can say if it compiles, yeah. then it won't raise an exception. Yeah. But if it does not compile, it may not be able to prove that. Um, mm -hmm. And it may still not raise an exception, but it may still fail to compile, right? So you can, example, for example, in Java, you can write type-correct programs that wouldn't crash at runtime, which don't compile because the types don't line up, right? Mm -hmm. uh, maybe you have something like if false uh, return five, else return string, right? Mm -hmm. This will always return a string because you have an if false in front, but it would not, the compiler wouldn't accept the program because statically it can't determine this, right? Mm -hmm. And um, the halting problem basically would, you would violate the halting problem if you could say always does mm -hmm. it with cer absolute certainty can it raise an exception or not? Mm -hmm. In a, a good type system, it can say you can say if it compiles, it works. But if it doesn't compile, I have no idea. Okay, so there's not always hundred percent certainty. Mm -hmm. It might still work, but fails to compile. Okay, so so it just is conservative, and it just says if I'm not sure, I will yeah. assume it doesn't work. Exactly. Right? Yeah, okay. you're, being, you're, you're erring on the conservative yeah. side. There, yeah. Okay, so uh, is there a way for me to then then say like believe me, computer? I know this works. Yeah, or? all of the languages. Yeah. This is why, I'm, why I was a little unclear about Haskell, right? So yeah. Culturally speaking, you wouldn't throw exception in Haskell, but you know, you can always do that and like ignore silence the compiler once. Yeah. And, and also in Idris, um, I'm not sure what it's called in Idris. In the system I've worked with at university, you could just say sorry. Like mm -hmm. literally you could type in sorry and it would accept <laughs> what you said. <laughs> and uh, other languages have, have, have different, uh, different uh -huh. ways. In Java, you can use a cast, mm -hmm. right? Um, so almost all of these practical languages have escape hatches because the real world is messy and um, you have this nice corner of like specifications and mm. algebras and stuff. But as soon as you have to talk to like a web service, all mm -hmm. that sort of, it can do arbitrary things and you would be very annoyed if you couldn't yeah. have any kind of escape hatch. Right? Yeah. What was the language that you used? Uh, so the, the, the system that I've used, it was called Isabel and it's mm -hmm. also a specification and proving language. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Okay, so to, to wrap this conversation up, um, let's talk a bit about practicality. Um, you already mentioned that a few times, like would you say that if I write a typical business web application that uh, algebraic design is helpful to design it or would you say that it doesn't fit that space very well yeah i i like the i like this credo um functional core imperative shell very much um where you would try to isolate your beautiful algebraic uh, domain logic from the messy real world so for example you're writing a, a web application that has some rest endpoints then you use whatever your dirty framework has to offer yeah. annotations whatever just just slap it on there just like take in the requests and parse them in some way and then you then you create some then you create some domain objects and then you pass it on to the core that mm -hmm. will then uh, deal with it uh, in, a, in a predictable fashion and then you can test those things separately and you can also def uh, device different front ends for that so i i'm very much in favor of of, of trying to separate like the messy real world from the internal mm -hmm. functionings and um 
I have yet to see a domain where it's completely impossible to have a functional core mm -hmm. um, in, in almost all of the domains. Uh, this is possible to some extent. But uh, in this uh, view of the world, um, um, talking to the database would also be the messy part, right? So it would, it would be outside of the imperative, uh, 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 the functional core, right? Yeah, I mean, it depends on what database you're talking to, yeah. right? Um, it's very often you can also align your data model with whatever the database has, right? Mm -hmm. So if you have a really something that maps very naturally to a relational database, then you can um, then then you can actually leverage the properties that the relational database has mm -hmm. because. Uh, SQL databases are based on relational algebra. So there's algebra again, right? Yeah. If you don't have that, maybe you're talking to a MongoDB where you just have unstructured JSON documents, then it's part of the shell, right? Yeah. But it also all depends on how how um, how your data model aligns with your data storage. Mm -hmm. And if you're lucky, this is the same thing. Yeah. Um, and otherwise, you just have to put some more conversions on there. But okay. um, yeah, I, there's also, I think, I think this is also called sometimes um, onion architecture. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's just good design that your inner details are not encumbered by you know, opening network connections, mm. for example. Okay, so so talking to the database would not be part of it, but uh, the data the the database model would be part of. I it. I think so. Yeah. yeah. And if your if your whatever database driver you have doesn't allow you to do that, then mm. you just have to write your own library on top of that. Right. Mm. Um, it would probably not a very good idea. Not would not be a very good idea to just write raw SQL code yeah. there in there but maybe like use some higher abstraction there are a lot of different libraries that that do that maybe not hibernate but <laughs> <laughs> okay. uh, something that's maybe a little bit more functional <laughs> okay so thank you Lars so much for this uh, conversation yeah thanks for having me and uh, to our listeners till next time bye bye bye